This is On Location. I'm Joe Mamlin. Today's episode was recorded on location in New Mexico, Georgia, and New York, and is part two of our series on the COVID-19 crisis. But first, On Location is produced by the NCA Communications Committee with support from committee co-chairs Robbie Endress and Judith Green, with special help from the podcast subcommittee chair, Tim Leitner. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, and Radio Public, among others. So subscribe on your favorite podcast service and tell all your friends. On today's show, Pat O'Donnell has a great panel, including Larry Hayek from New Mexico, Wendy Parker from Georgia, and Nick Palos from New York. They discuss how their agencies have maintained and continued the mission of the Child Support Program in the face of the pandemic. It's going to be a great show, so stick around, and we'll be right back. And welcome to the NCA podcast series on how child support programs around the country have continued to serve participants as the world changed in an instant. This is Pat O'Donnell, your host for today's podcast. I'm with Young Williams, and it's my privilege to work in the child support community. Spring 2020 will be remembered by millions around the globe as the time when the world seemingly changed in an instant. Our personal and professional lives have vastly changed and we're learning to navigate a new normal. Despite the upheaval, uncertainty, and concern, child support programs continue to focus on their core mission throughout every state, tribal organization, and territory in the country, working to figure out how to function day by day in ever-evolving circumstances. During our discussion today, we'll focus on how the New Mexico child support attorneys, the Georgia child support court administrators, and New York magistrates in family court rose to the unprecedented challenges of continuing to engage and serve their participants under extraordinarily difficult circumstances. I'm joined today by a distinguished panel of experts who will share their experiences, lessons learned, and recommendations to consider as we move forward through the months ahead. It's my pleasure to introduce Larry Hayek, Regional Managing Attorney for the New Mexico Child Support Enforcement Division. Larry graduated from the University of Arizona with his Juris Doctorate degree in 1987. He's been with the New Mexico Human Services Department since April of 2005 and has served as Deputy Medicaid Director, Deputy General Counsel, and now is the Regional Managing Attorney for Child Support for the southern half of the state. Hayek has been published and presented on numerous topics related to public assistance programs, including child support. Mm -hmm. 
Nicholas Palos has served as the support magistrate in the New York State Family Courts since November of 1997. He has served in the Child Support Enforcement Term, which heard all New York City TANF-based cases and in New York County and Kings County Family Courts, where he hears private cases. He currently presides over a problem-solving court in Kings County. Prior to his appointment as support magistrate, he spent five years as a court attorney assigned to a family court judge and three years as a child protective attorney in New York City. He's a member of the ERICSA board, currently serves as vice president for conference operations. He's the current president of the New York State Support Magistrates Association. Additionally, he is a past member of the NCA Board of Directors. He served on several family court advisory committees and presented at numerous NCA and ERICSA conferences, the Heidelberg and Hong Kong International Conference, and several continuous learning education programs for the local bar associations, including the New York City Bar Association, the New York County Lawyers Association, and co-taught the Paternity and Child Support Unit for the Appellate Division, Second Department's training for the assigned counsel panel. He's published several articles in the Child Support Quarterly and Child Support Communique, covering topics including remote hearings, social media and the law, and New York's Marriage Equality Act. Mr. Palos holds Bachelor of Art and Juris Doctor degrees from Fordham University. He's admitted to in New York and also before the Supreme Court of the United States. Wendy Parker is a parental accountability court manager for the Division of Child Support Services for the Georgia Department of Human Services. Since 2017, Wendy has served as the program manager with the Georgia Department of Human Services Division of Child Support Services, Parental Accountability Court Program. Prior to joining this, Wendy worked with the Georgia Department of Public Health and Georgia Office of Child Fatality Review Panel. While working with these two agencies, Wendy led many efforts to improve collaborative approaches in the prevention of childhood injuries and engaging the family unit with the primary interest of protecting children. Wendy holds a Master of Public Health degree from Walden University and a Bachelor of Science degree from the University of Southern Mississippi. Welcome Larry, Nick and Wendy, and thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate you sharing your experience and best practices so that we can all continue to learn and improve. Spring 2020 will be remembered obviously in a way that's quite unique to, in many ways, the way we've lived our lives up to this point. And despite everything, you've worked really hard to figure out how to move forward. The Kings County BCP Consulting Group has defined five phases of business continuity. And I reference this because as we were faced with this crisis, we all had to think about stop, think about how we deliver service, what needs to be different, what can we do in the same way, what potentially needs to be re-engineered. Those five phases include response, recovery, restoration, prevention, and mitigation. We've asked our panelists today to share with us the impacts of COVID-19 on both their internal organizations as well as how they've continued to serve clients and adapt. As shelter-in-place orders were put in place throughout the country, the use of technology became a critical link enabling our programs to continue to function. What were or are some of the challenges or obstacles in using technology for program participants, as well as within your program. Larry, what have you seen in New Mexico? 
Well, you want to make sure that everyone, including the courts, is using the same type of platform. For example, most of our courts are using Google Meets or Google Hangout. So you want to make sure that you have captured the information from the participants, the pro se litigants, including their email addresses, and whether or not they can participate by telephone. Using Google Meets, you have the ability to appear by video and or just by audio. The second obstacle that we had to overcome was the exchange of exhibits, whether it be by snail mail or whether we utilized email. And lastly, on that, trying to get those exhibits to the court so that they can be at least reviewed in a timely fashion before the hearing. And, and what we did was we worked with the trial court administrators so that we would send the documents to them so that then when the hearing came up and the documents were allowed to be viewed by the court, that they had them readily available. Great, thank you. Uh, Wendy, what, what have you seen in Georgia? Well, with Georgia, our Department of Human Services partners with our Superior Court judges where we work with participants who are in contempt of their child support. So instead of having them serve time in jail for contempt, they enter our parental accountability court. So being accountable during COVID had a lot of challenges. 52% of our participants didn't have a cell phone or they had phone limitations, which really made being accountable during the pandemic a problem. And so we needed equipment for virtual court sessions and or check-in meetings with their coordinator. So that definitely posed a challenge for us when working with our program participants, our customers. We also provide education in our 15 Department of Corrections transitional centers. And none of the transitional centers were set up for virtual education of the inmates so that has become a challenge for us and something that we are going to be working on in the future as well. But also during this time, our court systems that were on judicial emergency, as Larry mentioned, you know, they were closed. So when the courts started to open or for those who chose to during COVID in the shelter in place to have virtual court, they had varying technological platforms like Larry mentioned. So some of them were using Zoom. Others had zero experience. So we offered our platform that we were using actively, which was Microsoft Teams. We had not, as a government agency, received approval to even use Zoom. So getting on the same page for an approved platform that also had the enhanced security levels that as a government agency were required for us, that was a first step for sure. By no means have we perfected the process, but we definitely made huge strides in working together and the face-to-face -face time that participants, as well as our inmates in the transitional centers have, whether it's with our child support staff or our vendors in the transitional centers or with our judges in the PAC program, it's just critical for their success and their growth. Um, it took us about a solid month to really investigate how to do all of this properly. That's, that's really helpful. Thank you, Wendy. What has your philosophy been regarding enforcement activities during these times of high unemployment and shelter-in-place orders? Nick, what have you seen in New York? Well, New York, actually, there, there were no court-based enforcement activities whatsoever, and that's because child support proceedings were deemed non-essential by court administration, so we were completely shut down. We are still not accepting any new filings yet. We're just working on the old cases, that all the, the cases that have been previously filed before the, the shutdown. 
What has happened with the administrative enforcement by the agency is we could the courts ask them to stop doing certain things. For example, driver's license suspensions, because the driver's license suspension process involves first the notice that's going to be suspended, then a challenge to that within the agency, and then if the the party is not satisfied with that, they can file an objection to the court. We weren't taking those objections. So somebody likely is going to wind up with their license suspended that should not have been suspended in terms of the administrative actions. We're just beginning to gear up now, and we've had to de develop what is basically a violations part in, this in most counties now in response to something entirely different. And that part is beginning to start picking up hearings and all again at this point. But we don't fully have the tool of our parent support program because a lot of the jobs programs that we would use are still not taking new clients. My resource coordinator is still not on site. The parties aren't on site. The only people in the courthouse right now are the court staff, the, the jurists, and a certain percentage of our clerical staff. And that is it. So really, we haven't started to even get back up on court-based enforcement yet. Okay. Thanks, Nick. So, Larry, what has New Mexico done regarding enforcement? Well, we turned off all contempt mechanisms. Um, here, New Mexico is a judicial state, which means that we have to bring everything pretty much before the court for any judicial enforcement. We still had administrative enforcement remedies put in place, but as far as judicial enforcement, we turned off all of our contempt proceedings, which would be our orders to show cause. We didn't want anyone picked up with respect to bench warrants that may be out there or for failures to appear. Um, it was very difficult to continue to operate and enforce the child support obligations, but we went through what we did with what was called a motion to enforce, at least to bring the issues before the court, even by doing that virtually. And what happens is we didn't know the stories as to what these people were experiencing. For example, a non-custodial parent who was not paying Again, we didn't want to automatically put that person in jail or force them to come to court, obviously, during this uh, particular time. And so what we did was we had them tell us what the story was and what was going on and then try to work through some of the issues, such as a uh, temporary relief from the order uh, with the agreement of the parties or with the court. Or we found out that they were uh, receiving unemployment, what those employment benefits would be. And, and so we tried to try to work with the individuals during this time instead of just automatically uh, go to jail, go directly to jail. Okay. Thank you, Larry. So with hindsight being perfect, what opportunities do you think we might have to modify policy or to re-engineer processes to enable our child support judicial activities to proceed as we continue to evolve through this pandemic? Nick, do you have a perspective on this? Well, yeah, I've got a lot of ideas. Some I've expressed to my supervisors uh, how we re-engineer what we do. I think, number one, we have to make much greater use of the technology that we already have. We use a Skype platform for court in terms of being able to have people appear to be able to meet. Problems our recording system is a separate thing altogether. We record in something called For the Record, and that becomes the official re record of our court. We are a court of record. We have to keep that. And right now, they've never done anything to cross-connect these two particular platforms if there's a way to do so. So right now I'm sitting there with microphones in front of my speakers in order to try and make sure I get a clear record of the court proceedings. That's one thing we need to clear up. A second thing we need to clear up is going to be a way to deal with our backlog. 
They have been accepting emails from people who want modifications, for example, due to the economic shutdown, but they're not filing anything. So while they're sort of locking in a filing date to deal with the particular arrears accrual issues, they're not getting their petitions filed. And these things are probably piling up and we're going to come back when we start taking them and having an outrageously high number of modifications, terminations, establishment cases that we have to try and deal with as a backlog. And I've made some suggestions of unifying an intake part for that so that those all go into one place and the rest of us, and, and one of us sits in there for about a week. And then the rest of us deal with regular calendars, dealing with cases that are prepared to proceed so we can try and streamline that process. I think what we may also be able to do, because the big worry of course is overtime, especially right now with the state's budget crisis, but dealing with this virtually, they don't have to worry about overtime. The magistrates were not paid overtime. We're salaried employees. So we can deal with this without a staff in the courtroom as long as we're doing it virtually. And we can actually set the appointments up to meet the individual schedules. We don't have to insist that people come to court between 9 and 4.30. Someone's easier in the evening. Perhaps if we have the appropriate recording technology, I can sit in my little home office and take the testimony and deal with the cases that way as well. But that's something that's still probably further down the line. But those are some of the things I think when you do, we, we also need to give the litigants that opportunity to electronically file their petitions. And I mean really electronically file the petition, not just draft the papers and send it in and then wait for them to be sent back with their new dates and their summonses, et cetera. It means actually letting them file that petition and getting it calendared with as little interaction with court staff as possible. Yeah, that, that would certainly streamline things. You're right. So, Wendy, what are, what are your thoughts around how you might want to modify policy or re-engineer some of your processes? Well, I really liked what Nick was talking about is trying to meet the participants where they are. And that's one of the things that we did right out of the gate. You know, we expanded our call center hours just so that we could make sure that we are meeting our customers' needs, providing excellent customer service was, our, was still our goal during this time. You know, we wanted to make sure that our customers could still reach us and know that we were there despite 100% physical facility closures. So the only staff we had going into the offices were the ones that, you know, we had to get our mail. We had to check the mail. We had to get mail distributed. So that was a unique process for physical standing child support offices. But in Georgia specifically, we did make temporary policy exceptions. Um, we also included drafting of scripts for staff in response to customer inquiries. You know, some of those policy exceptions during this time, as Larry mentioned earlier, was about the driver's license suspension. You know, we put those on hold through May 30th. Um, emancipations, too, was an issue. You know, with school closures, our parents not having the ability to obtain documentation of graduation dates, you know, that halted normal protocol. So verbal confirmation was accepted, you know, until documents could be obtained. We also, you know, put our um, financial institution, the data match liens on, on hold. Sanctions, non-cooperation, you know, failure to respond. I think Larry mentioned that also, you know, all these processes were considered. They were looked at, you know, how long we needed to delay those. So we really took everything that we could into account. You know, with our Supreme Court's order declaring a statewide emergency, we were limited with the ability to proceed with any kind of enforcement actions 
And so we had to make a decision if non-payment was intentional or was it due to the circumstances beyond the non-custodial parent's control. And again, as Larry mentioned, you know, we had to take those actions that were available and appropriate based on their current circumstances. And that was very, very important to us. And again, it falls under, you know, customer service. Our governor issued an executive order that permitted remote notarization and witnessing of all documents. So that was very helpful for us. So since there's specific criteria that applied, you know, offices just had to consult with their attorneys for some of those options regarding the specificity, if you will, of the notary public documents and the communication tools they were using. It was very specific. So working with their attorneys at the local office was key for that. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like you made a lot of changes and I'm guessing that some of those changes will live with you for a while. (laughs) Yes. Um, One of the things that I think really came to light, if we didn't already know, it sort of hit us in the head that there are a lot of technology gaps that have been identified throughout our population as a result of COVID. Do you have any thoughts on how to bridge this technology gap that may exist for many of our program participants. Larry? Well, the first thing you need to try to do is learn how to communicate with the individual participants. So for example, my email has been the most prevalent way that we have been able to communicate with individuals. So the first thing our staff or our customer service representatives will deal with is asking them, how can we get a hold of you? Do you have a phone? If so, do you have an email? Do you have access to any of the platforms such as Google Meets? That is what the court is asking us to utilize as Google Meets, and that also has the opportunity not only to appear by video, but also to appear by telephone. I want to highlight what Nick mentioned. It's not just the technology gaps between the participants and us. It's also us with the courts. So, For example, I'm actually with you on my cell phone, on my personal cell phone, because I don't have a microphone or a camera on my desktop computer. And so we are trying to now work to try to get a rollout of laptops, which would have a camera and a microphone. When I have to appear in certain courts by video, we have one laptop, and that's where I then do those hearings. So obtaining the information from the participants is extremely important. Work with your courts on how they want to have that done. And I want to highlight what Wendy mentioned, because we went from utilizing notaries, and we did have the ability to do that virtually, but we also moved anything we can to declarations. So having the people declare that this is true under penalty of perjury rather than having them submitted to a notary. But working through all of those things, the technology gaps between the office and the participants, the participants in the courts, and the office with the courts is extremely important. Yeah, it really is. And this really has highlighted the need for collaboration and ensuring that the different areas of technology can communicate. So Nick, what are your thoughts related to your program participants and internal stakeholders in New York? Well, I think the first thing, uh, building what Larry just said, is in terms of how do we get sworn statements from, sworn written statements from the individual parents. In New York, you're required to file this sworn statement of net worth. And for years, we've been battling it out with administration to say, why can't these things be filed online? And they talk about having to be before a notary and have them sworn. And even if we point out, wait a minute, we do our tax returns online. Those are sworn statements under penalty of perjury. 
we as individual jurists and other members of the court system have to file a financial form with the court system. We can do that online and we, we click the little, little button, it's considered a sworn statement. So part of the gap is also trying to educate administrators in terms of the court administration, in terms of what should be done, what will make this more efficient and let it go through. The administrative level of the courts are still people who were trained prior to the technology days. And so they're leery of any of these kinds of changes. And we're trying to, we're going to have to try and get them to accept that changing the way we do business is going to have to involve technology. It's going to have to involve changing the way we view things in terms of how you get sworn statements. It's going to change how we're going to get information submitted to the court. And the tools are already there because we've adopted some of those changes when we adopted UIFSA. So for interstate cases, we already can do some of this stuff. Why we can't just bring it into the intrastate cases is a mystery to me about this whole thing. I mean, we, the only thing we've made that change for in New York State is to allow an intrastate telephonic appearance on a, a regular basis. And that's because somebody was puzzled by the fact that when I was in Manhattan, Jersey City, New Jersey was right across the river from the courthouse. That person can appear by telephone. Somebody up in Niagara Falls, an eight-hour drive away from the courthouse, had to come down to New York City. Hmm. And so we got the legislature to change the law. And I think that's going to be the other half of the problem is to convince our legislators that these changes are necessary, will work, and make everybody's even. It's, it's such a big package of things that have to be done. We, ha we have to also deal with the fiscal realities of all that. Oh, absolutely. The biggest yeah. problem. <laughs> yeah, it's a huge problem. And I know that the fiscal issues are on top of mind for every state across the country. Uh, Nick, you alluded to the fact that your your backlog is growing uh, exponentially and that you have some recommendations in place to try to prioritize that. Do you think that necessity will be the catalyst to really cause people to say, yes, we will consider and we will, in fact, do things differently? I hope so. I'm the, I am not sure that's going to be the case because, again, the way the administration breaks down there are too many other things that are being dealt with. And we sort of in child support get pushed to the side. But the, the issue of dealing with the backlog of filings is not just going to be a child support issue, at least with the New York City's family court. We are so huge. We're looking at you know, thousands of petitions that are already active and more to come. And they're going to have to look at it from the point of view, how do we resolve these issues before the children age out? Because otherwise, I mean, it's already a long delay because of the sheer number of cases. If we just keep pushing things back, I'll be looking at adjourn dates probably into next year on initial cases. And I remember when I started and I tried to keep my adjourn dates to no more than seven weeks. Now there's no way that can be done. We're looking at five, six months down the line at best. And that was before we were shut down. So they're going to have to do something. Otherwise, we're never going to get out of this. So I'm not sure it's a hope, but I think it's just reality. They're going to have to face it. And if they don't, they're going to likely face lawsuits from people. Which is certainly the outcome we do not want. And we certainly don't want those families in limbo for all of that time. You're right. Exactly. Yep. What's your perspective on backlogs and how you think you'll prioritize them and move forward? Pat, uh, Pat I've got a couple of suggestions there if you if you want me to chime in. Please do, Larry. Yeah. Um, I, I, I've been working with the courts and with our office staff to try to work on the establishment of our child support obligations. So this way, at least we have an interim 
child support obligation put in place so that if it's appropriate, we have money going from the non-custodial parent to the custodial parent. Asking those individuals to wait is, is very critical. So we try to get the money in as soon as possible. It is also, so working with our courts and our staff to focus on the establishment cases. The second thing would be the modifications because of COVID. Again, people have lost their jobs or lost their opportunities. So that would be the second piece. And the third piece would be down the road would be the uh, enforcement. But focus on establishment modifications. The backlog, you're just going to have to, we're going Monday through Friday. We're back on the calendars, doing them by virtual, by telephone, and by video. Uh, you're just going to have to prioritize with the courts and, and work through that. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other interesting issue that we're going to have is in New York State for years, the, or at least in New York City, the City Office of Child Support Services has wanted to sort of conference the cases in their offices, especially with the W-2 wage earners. If they can come to an agreement, just submit the paperwork to the court, avoiding the need to take time off from work, et cetera, but getting those easy cases out of our hair. Now, basically, they're on the appearance for a couple of minutes. We sign the orders, send them off that way, and court administration keeps shooting this down. This may be the time where that's going to have to be an option for us to use again to get out from underneath this particular um, backlog that we're going to uh, we're going to be mired in because otherwise you're going to have people <clears throat> never seeing the court because we'll have people coming in they'll sit out in the waiting area and never get into a court. Yep. Hey Pat, this is Wendy. I wanted to say I appreciate the question about backlog because we really are dealing with an unprecedented situation here, and you know. I'm not sure about the other states on the call, but, you know, in Georgia, we've got 49 circuits that we work with. And and all of those circuits, as y'all know, you know, they have multiple judges. So, you know, when we're limiting number of cases on a calendar, it's obvious that that backlog is going to continue for some time. But for us, you know, we're already working on it via some of these executive orders we've put in place with remote notarization. I think Larry mentioned the declarations, which is brilliant. But we're also really putting a lot of resources into this remote work environment for all of our staff, court administrators and child support um, collectively. So to support these judicial processes that are required, one of the things that we have really relied on is our mobile application for child support in Georgia. We have a mobile app that allows our customers not only to make their payments and check the status, but they can upload documents, they can schedule remote appointments or make a request for an appointment. So that one tool that we put in place, I don't know exactly when we put it in place, but at least over a year ago, it's been a godsend for us in the sense of a resource for our customers. So from a child support perspective, you know, we're continually working with our judicial partners to make sure that we have a plan in place, but also following the safety guidelines at the same time for when court sessions do get scheduled. And lastly, you know, as courts open, we've got to be okay with the fact that other priorities may take precedence. Yeah, I have to say, Wendy, your mobile app is uh, really terrific. I've looked at it at, at some length and it's very, it's just an excellent tool. So congratulations to you and your colleagues in Georgia. Thank you. So last question, uh, if each of you ruled the world, uh, what one thing would you put into place that would enable your program to be most effective in a virtual environment? Larry, any final thoughts? 
Oh, proper proper equipment and platforms, communication with the participants and the courts, that is very, very important. So whatever we can work through and everybody's consistent. Uh, Wendy mentioned that we're not only dealing with different circuits and different districts, but we're also dealing with different judges. So consistent equipment, platforms, so that we can express that to our participants. Yep, absolutely. Nick, what are your thoughts? Um, I've already been talking to people about an idea of a My Case app for the courts, ah. which will help the individuals. Mm -hmm. Number one, it'll put it'll hook them directly into whatever platform we wind up using as time goes on for the remote appearances because Skype is being phased out into Teams. And we don't know what the new licensing is going to be. We don't know what the court's going to get for that at that point. But it, that'll be built right into that app that they'll be able to connect through that. It'll allow them to file and organize their paperwork because efficiency in the court process is going to have to be one of our guidelines. And right now we waste so much time, people shuffling through paper. But having everything organized in one place that they can just hit a button and upload it to us would be very helpful as well in that process. Plus, it'll give them notifications beforehand. A couple of days, you realize you have a court date appointment on this date. Are all your papers ready? Do you have this A, B, C, and D ready to go? So that this way, the, the parties are better prepared, which leads again to getting better orders in, in the first place. Yeah. I think that's what I would love to see developed within our court system or from someone outside the court system that we can connect into our court system so that the individuals from out that are using the court system have a way of organizing things because we're not going to be able to get lawyers for everybody to meet this justice gap they talk about. But I think an app that allows the parties to work their way through what they need to effectively represent themselves in court is probably the best route to go. I love that idea. I think that's great. I hope that works. I hope you can get that funded and get it uh, implemented. So, Wendy, what are, you, what are your thoughts? Well, I 100% agree with what Larry and Nick have said and, and what we need. I 100% agree with the technology needs. But I have to take the answer to the perspective of our customers and our participants. As I mentioned in the beginning, you know, we have a high percentage of our customers that did not have the ability, the tools or the technology to even respond if we were giving them a virtual opportunity. You know, they they have either have no cell phones or the cell phones that they do have maybe a minute phone. And we feel guilty, you know, requiring them to use their phone to come into a virtual setting when their minutes may be limited already. And some of those minutes were being used to respond to their employers, you know, to help them get that interview and to get back to work. So we need resources for our participants that are struggling to keep up with the technology needs that they are also needed in need of. And, and right now, you know, we don't have the resources for that. So that is definitely an active ongoing conversation in our agency. We are eager to resource and, and research what we are able to do for them, but definitely looking from the customer perspective, how we are going to be able to, to do this with them together. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we can't lose sight of the human beings that are participating in this. As much as the technology is an enabler, uh, it, it is not going to solve the complete problem. You're exactly right. Well, that wraps up our podcast. So Larry, Nick, and Wendy, thank you so much for sharing your experiences. Despite being in very different parts of the country, your responses, your adaptations, and your dedication, actually enabled you to continue to be able to serve both your team members and your participants effectively. 
if we needed a reminder, we're more technology dependent than ever. And as we mentioned, they are the common tools that enable us to work together cohesively despite being in different locations and communicate with stakeholders while maintaining flexibility to respond as circumstances change and evolve. As we continue to adapt to this global pandemic over the next days, weeks, and months, your comments and your insights, I think, benefit all of us in the child support community. This is Pat O'Donnell, and on behalf of NCIA, again, thank you all for participating in today's podcast. very much again to Larry, to Wendy, and to Nick for being on the show today. And thanks to Pat O'Donnell for leading the conversation. And of course, thanks again to Tim Leitner for putting the episode together. On Location is available on iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcast. We have a lot of great things on the way, so be sure to subscribe and listen to all of our episodes. We also appreciate your ratings, your feedback, your comments, and your suggestions. On Location is a production of the INSEA Communications Committee, with support from committee co-chairs Robbie Endress and Judith Green, with special help from the podcast subcommittee chair, Tim Leitner. Thanks for joining me today. I'm Joe Mamlin, and this has been On Location. <laughs>